What if Miley Cyrus was the heir apparent to Rupert Murdoch? We basically answered that question today and more here on the Unproduced Table Read. So don't move a muscle. Welcome to Popcorn Talk, featuring movie discussion, news, and interviews. Popcorn Talk. We talk movies. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Unproduced Table Read here on the Popcorn Talk. What we're hearing right now is the theme song to the late O'Reilly show. I know Bill O'Reilly's criticism. Right. Um, because today's hate script... You, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Preach. Get him um, out of here. <laughs> today's script, guys, is kind of a satire of sort of O'Reilly show-esque TV and basically cable news in general. So we're excited, so excited to present it to you here on the Unproduced Table Read. Um, in the meantime, guys, my name is Jeff Graham. If you guys want to find me on Twitter, you can do so at Jeffrey C. Graham. The script reading today is called Moguls by Josh Dorian. Um, Josh is in New York, so we actually don't have him here in studio today, but we will have him calling in. Um, and if any of you guys are tuning in for the first time, this is a show where we read Hollywood's hottest pilots and features that haven't been made yet in an attempt to bring them to life. So we're excited about today's script. I've got an amazing cast here with me, and I'd love for you guys to introduce yourselves and who you'll be playing today on the show. Awesome. My name is uh, Andrew Guy. You can find me at Andrew Guy on Instagram and Twitter. And I'm the bad guys today. So I'm going to read uh, Crowley, Huxley, Roger Emerald, and Clint or Chris or something horrible like that. <laughs> I don't even want to remember his name. <laughs> He's that bad. Yeah. <laughs> hey guys, I'm Roxy Stryer. You can find me everywhere at Roxy Stryer. And I'll be reading Emma. Hey guys, I'm Adrian Snow. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Miss Adrian Snow, M S E D R I N S N O W. And I'm reading for Kendra and Gail. Hey, I'm Haley O'Connor on Twitter at Haley O'Connor, and today I am reading Nurse, Brooke, Sue Joanne, and Darcy. What's up, everybody? I'm Timothy Michael. You can reach me on all social media platforms at I am Timothy Mike. And today I've got some bad guys too, Andrew. I'm right. reading <laughs> Gary Weisgerhard, Little Stan, Neil, and Sammy. What's going on, guys? It's your boy Jimmy V. You can reach me at uh, at Be Your Own Dad, Twitter and Instagram. Today I'm the professional, so I'm a limo <laughs> driver. I'm Jerry and Ian. Um, awesome. Thanks so much, guys. I'm so excited to have you all back in studio. Um, so Josh is a great writer. It's interesting because Josh actually came to us as a writer of like corporate speeches, um, which is part of the reason I think that he was inspired to write this script. Um, normally, I won't read the bios. I get sent word for word, but I like Josh's so much. I'm going to go ahead and do that for you guys today. Um, Josh is a reformed corporate whore who spent too many years working as a writer in communications positions, um, writing ad copy and marketing copy speeches and newspaper and magazine articles on behalf of other corporate whores. Um, he says, while this sort of career is basically the bubonic plague for the soul, <laughs> it gave him the opportunity to work closely and observe some very powerful and important people. Um, he gets in to explain that he kind of noticed that a lot of the powerful CEOs he was writing for kind of seemed to have gotten that position arbitrarily. Mm -hmm. um, he was like, you know, some of my coworkers who were on entry-level positions seem just as capable, if not more capable, than these people mm -hmm. in super high-powered positions, which I thought is a very interesting observation and is kind of like the thesis statement to this whole script. So mm -hmm. I'm really excited to get into it. Um, comedy fans, you're going to love this one. Yeah. I do. It's called Moguls, and I say we get into it. Let's do it. <laughs> um, so, guys, this is the pilot script to Moguls, written by Josh Dorian. Interior editing suite day. Emma Shea, 27, sits at an edit bay. Her hair is accidentally fashionable in a messy ponytail, and the mustard stains on her seven samurai tea, less fashionable. Gary Weisgerhard, 58, a short sleeves and tie kind of guy, leans over her shoulder. Oof. Ugh, did you have fermented sardines for lunch? Don't be rude. I'm trying to teach you how to do your job. What do you have? Found a riot, like you asked. Bunch of drunk frat boys. On her, screen, on her screen, nighttime footage of a dozen or so drunk college students in Ohio State swag throwing a couch on a bonfire in the middle of the street. Wrong. 
these are Muslim riots in France. What are you talking about? This is Ohio. They're eating Taco Bell. <laughs> Watch and learn. We zoom in so you can't see any Ohio State gear. Focus on the riot police throwing some extra audio. Emma watches in both horror and in awe. He's a maestro on that keyboard as he quickly scrubs, cuts, replay. The scene is now darker, more frenetic. The fire blazes in the background as men in hoodies kick and smash a car. Arabic voices shout and chant. See? They're enforcing a no-go zone, keeping the French out of Sharia neighborhoods. Look at how violent these Muslims are. <laughs> this is so wrong. They're riding over touchdowns. Alternative facts. <laughs> Looks like a Paris suburb to me. Michigan sucks donkey, dick! Cut out that audio, add some French and Arabic chanting from the archives, and get it to Sammy for tomorrow's show. You can't do that! It's Just shut up and do your job. You're lucky you have it. Off Emma seething to exterior midtown Manhattan night. Emma talks to herself as she walks and takes a bite of a hot dog. Maybe you're lucky to have a job. Maybe you're lucky I don't go all Sanjuro on your ass. Emma does a pretty badass imitation of Teresha Mifune's samurai virtuosity, brandishing her hot dog as her sword. Beg for mercy or I shall disembowel you with this <laughs> hot dog. As she takes a bite of her hot dog, a limousine <laughs> speeds through a red light, past honking cars, and screeches to a stop on the fucking sidewalk. Emma just barely leaps out of the way. Watch it, jackass! We don't drive on sidewalks here. This isn't Boston. <laughs> Interior limousine continuous. In the back of the limo, Bartholomew Crowley, 85, pours a scotch. No, listen, Senator. I don't give a rat's piss about school lunches. Let them eat ketchup. I expect you to call... Crowley clutches his <laughs> chest, drops his phone, and howls in pain. The limo driver leaps into the back of the car, reaches into the minibar for a defibrillator. He rips Crowley's shirt open, attaches the charges, and zap! Crowley breathes, look past the minibar to... <gasps> Did you just spill a bottle of Bowmore single malt? Uh, uh, I'm sorry, sir. <laughs> oh, oh, get out, you clumsy oaf. The driver considers zapping him in the fucking head, but thinks better of it and exits. Seconds later, Crowley has another seizure. He grabs the paddles, holds them over his own chest, and zap! <clears throat> Neil, send my helicopter to Rockefeller. I don't know. Tell him to land on the goddamn plaza. Sounds of a helicopter fade to a Shostakovich on a solo violin. Exterior Woodside Queens night. Music continues over a working class Queens neighborhood. Pubs and busy shops are intermingled with small homes and apartments. So I was like, that's totally unethical, douche finger. <laughs> Interior Woodside apartment night. A tiny studio with two twin beds. Emma sits on a bed strewn with clothes. The other is perfectly made. And he was all like, whoa, you're right. What was I thinking? The music comes to a stop. Uh, the music comes to a stop as Cameron Ndaye, 26, a dark-skinned girl in an Altazura summer dress, sets down her violin. In other words, you said, yes, sir. Sorry, sir. And I can expect to see the xenophobia all over Coffee Geek Pals tomorrow. Exactly. Mm. I'm spineless. No, you're not spineless. You're just trying to survive like everyone else. Emma pulls out. Emma pulls up Kurosawa Sinjura on her iPad. She raises her arms over her head in a samurai pose. Okay. Enough of that samurai shit. Seriously, I need to practice. Makes me feel empowered. You want to be empowered? Take some of that dirty money you earned today and buy us some wine. Three bottles of two-buck chuck or one bottle of fancy six-dollar vino? Kendra holds up three fingers. Duh. Interior hospital room night. A weakened Crowley is hooked up to all sorts of equipment. He's surrounded not by family, but business associates. R Ruggins? Jerry, 60, Crowley's rumple-suited lawyer, types on his laptop. Ruggins can't take control of company from prison, but 
I have a workaround that will keep FNA in the family. What in Sam's hell is this world coming to when good men like Ruggins are in prison while daggone union thugs are free to teach kids? <laughs> the man with the, pol- with the posh-ish Kentucky draw is Stan Poick, 50, a health insurance mogul. We'll get to the cancer profiteering later this season. <laughs> Everyone just calls him Lil Stan, but not to his face. Uh, Ruggins may not be here, sir, but uh, if I may, you may have always been like a father to me. And that's Randy Huxley, 45, VP of Programming at Crowley's Company. Perfect hair, perfect teeth, as if he was manufactured in a VP incubator. He pours Crowley a scotch as a nurse enters. You can't drink in here. You just had two heart attacks and a stroke. My, My liver. Liver is strong. Out! Out with you two. The lawyer can stay five more minutes. As the others exit, Jerry pulls a file from a wireless printer, puts it on the doctor's clipboard, and Crowley signs it. Since your son can't take over Scoop Corp, we'll put the parent company in a trust and leave FNA to your daughter. Crowley drops the clipboard, having another seizure. No, 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 no Huxley. D- daughter. Daughter. Yes, your daughter will get FNA, not Hewley. That's what I said. No, no, not da- Huxley. Ass mouth, daughter. No. Crowley lurches and kicks. The ECG flatlines. Jerry slowly backs away from the door. Uh, nurse? <laughs> the nurse runs back in and we cut to black. End of cold open. Act one. Interior Woodside apartment morning. The sun hasn't even risen yet, but Kendra is already up, studying sheet music under a dim lamp. Emma stirs and sits up in bed. Well, it's 5.30. You can sleep another hour. Can't. I have an early meeting with my boss. <laughs> Dickhead thinks I have an attitude. <laughs> Emma sniffs a pair of jeans on her bed, tosses them aside. Kendra takes off her headphones and flips on the TV. You know, if you did laundry, you wouldn't have to smell your clothes like a hound. Ugh, man. Change the channel. I work for that awful show. Makes my butt itch. <laughs> I will turn on the show every morning until you can assemble a work ensemble that isn't stained with mustard or sriracha. Emma pulls on a t-shirt and a pair of jeans. Sriracha stains are like Instagram for clothes. This one is from when we went to Momofuku and you told your mom you were dropping out of law school to go to Juilliard. Kendra half smiles at the memory as Emma dashes out in a rush. On TV, coffee cake pals. Carl, 45, with a 1980s hair helmet, consoles a tearful blonde in a short skirt. Brooke, 40. We lost a great man last night. He started FNA to bring freedom and news together 24-7. He was the first one to do that. Combine freedom and news. <laughs> and now he's in heaven playing golf with Jesus and Ronald Reagan. Speaking of Jesus, did you see the latest in France? We have exclusive video of Muslims trying to kill Christians in the streets of Paris. <laughs> we can practically hear Kendra's eyes roll as she clicks off the TV and picks up her violin. Exterior, F&A building, Midtown Manhattan morning. The logo on the building tells all. A giant red, white, and blue eagle perched atop the letters F&A, Freedom News America. Is this about my browser history? (laughs) Interior Crowley's office continuous. Massive corner office. Leather, mahogany, all that shit. Jerry sits across from Emma as Huxley stands and glowers. Because I'm not naming names, but if you found centaur porn, it wasn't me. (laughs) No, no, there's a... Centaur porn? May I inquire? How does that work? Is it horsey style? Or or do they? Can you, uh, Ziphead, save the Narnia circle jerk for another time? <clears throat> sorry, sorry. Yes, yes. <laughs> Emma, the reason that you're here is, uh... Well, I'm sure you heard the tragic news. Neil enters. Crowley's assistant. 25, slim-cut Tom Ford suit. Yes. Terrible. So sad. Those poor people and... 
Nepal, Peru, West Palm Beach. No, what news? Bartholomew Crowley passed away. Wow, that is shocking and sad. Super sad. I mean, I'm stunned. Emma clearly has no idea who Bartholomew Crowley is. Huxley watches her in silence. Bartholomew Crowley, owner of Scoop Corps, your employer. <laughs> oh, I think I saw that jacket. Uh, I think I saw that uh, him last night. Sadly fitting, you see. Uh, Crowley's son is unable to take over Scoop Corp, so he left the media empire to his only other direct heir. He pauses and looks her in the eye. His daughter. There must be some kind of mistake. My parents are teachers, were retired. Yeah, you might want to talk with your mother about her bedroom sport activities in the 90s. (laughs) Emma, you are the majority stockholder of Scoop Corp and the new CEO of FNA Cable News. Huxley storms out of the office and slams the door behind him. Neil grins, relishing the drama to come. Exterior Lower Manhattan Emerald Tower Day. Emerald Tower, a 60-story high-rise. The top 15 floors extend outward in what can only be described as a gold-plated bulbous head. One word is emblemized underneath the bulbous tip. Emerald. Are you just getting here? Interior Emerald Communications Office moments later. Kendra is accosted by her boss as she sits in her cubicle. It's 6.30. Sue Joanne is only 60, but wears the sort of floral print pantsuits that were popular with women in their 90s. I've been here since 5. Did you read the journal this morning? Of course. (laughs) I want you on Twitter talking up what a great man he is. Absolutely. You mean Bartholomew Crowley? No, you haven't read the journal. Mr. Emerald has been indicted for laundering money for ISIS. We sell pink Twinkies. How did... Not Twinkies! Strawberry emerald pudding cake. Stay on brand. (laughs) So what? He was hiding money for ISIS in the creamy pudding center? Low interest pudding cake bonds. Allegedly. Talk him up on social media, philanthropy, donations to charities. charities? Does he... Not make it up. Oh, Oh, he's here. He's here. Roger Emerald, 55, steps off the elevator, wearing a $5,000 suit that somehow looks like it came off a rack at Kohl's. He's followed by a young man, 26, carrying a pen and notebook. Good morning, Mr. Emerald. You're in early. This is Sue Joanne, most tremendous communications broad in New York. She makes words and news and shit like that. To Sue Joanne? This is Cody, or Chase, or whatever. He's writing my autobiography. It's going to be wonderful. The greatest autobiography you ever saw. If you have a moment, Mr. Emerald, I need to talk to you about the auction. I'm buying Benito's Alfa Romero 6C. Benito was a tremendous leader, and he had the best style. It's just that, minor point really, but buying Mussolini's car might not send the best public relations message. Buy it through a the charitable foundation. No one will ever know. Emerald puts his arm around Kendra before she can slip away. And this lovely lady here is... Kimbra. Kendra. Kimbra. He turns to <laughs> Chase Cody or whatever. See, it's like I told you, the blacks love me. Uh. Write that down. Blacks love me. <laughs> Cody, chase whatever, mouths the words, the blacks love me, as he scribbles in his notebook. Kendra's phone pings. She slips out of Emerald's reach and starts texting. Interior, women's restroom, moments later, Kendra sits in a stall, mid-conversation on her phone. Good grief. If this is real, then... Interior, Crowley's office, continuous. Emma is now alone in the office, on her phone, blinds closed. I'm numb. My entire life is a lie. I'm rich, apparently, so why do I feel nauseous? Intercut between the two. That's a lot to take in. You need to call your mom. Oh, I'm not ready 
for that wormhole. She's not a wormhole. She's simultaneously my mom, and she's a wormhole. She gave birth to me through Schrodinger's vagina. (laughs) Oh, that joke was funny. Maybe the first 17 times you said it. Just call her. Kendra swipes off her phone, takes a breath, and reaches down, revealing her violin case on the floor. She picks up the violin and practices Shostakovich right there on the toilet. Exterior beach day. Close on Gail Shea, 62, sitting on a pristine beach. When her phone rings, Gail sees Emma's face live on FaceTime. Hello, dear. I thought you might call. Interior Crowley's office day. Emma is alone in the office, blinds closed, looking at her mother on the phone. It's true. Dad isn't my dad. Intercut. Of course he's your dad. He raised you, didn't he? He's just not the one who planted his sperm in my egg. Ew, Mom. Gross. Do you have to put it in those terms? Well, that's biology, dear. Nothing to be squeamish about. Your father taught biology, for heaven's sake. Your father who raised you, not your sperm father. Where is daddy, not my sperm daddy? Well, he's around. Honestly, we do get lost around the house sometimes. How do you get lost in that tiny condo? Oh, we just use a condo when we're on the mainland. We live in Bimini. How? Your teachers were... Well, we weren't allowed to tell you, dear. Not until Bartholomew passed. That was a condition of his, of his giving us money. Hey, the house! As Gail turns, Emma sees a mansion on the beach and her dad, Ian, 65, walking up toward Gail. So my real father is that jackass Bartholomew Crowley? That jack... He paid for your college and your braces. Got you a job in his company when you had nothing but a worthless film school degree. (laughs) Honestly, (coughs) Emma, the man just died. Show some respect. (laughs) And you always said you wanted to do something important to make your mark on the world. I never said that. I said I wanted to be samurai, but you said samurai's not a career and made me go to college. Emma, dear. Oh, I have to go. There's booze in here. Emma swipes off her phone and pours a scotch. She takes a long drink and grimaces and pours herself another. Interior Huxley's office day. Huxley looks through his office blinds, past the desks in the open office, to that corner office that was supposed to be his. He walks to his desk and picks up the phone. I need you and Carl to ramp up the attacks on the gays. I need you to draw out a mouse. He walks to the window, pulls his office blinds shut tight. So what are you going to wear on tomorrow's show? He reaches into his pants with a free hand. Yes, the purple skirt. I like that. Purple works on you. I get up high on the thigh and wear that uh, that uh, baby blue mini the next day, okay? <laughs> Huxley's hand picks up the pace. Interior Crowley's office day. Emma takes one last sip of scotch and grimaces. She shoves it aside as the phone rings. She looks at the screen. Shit. Gary, you would not Give believe... Give me one reason why I shouldn't fire you. Interior editing suite simultaneous. Gary stands behind an edit bay next to Sammy, 40 going on 20. Handlebar mustache, skinny jeans. She's finished. You're going to have to take her workload. Oh man. I got D&D tonight. My elf assassin Randy just got a new orc sword. And a boob job. Mm. <laughs> Doesn't Matt... Elves can get boob jobs? <laughs> Interior Crowley's office simultaneous. Emma opens her office door. A dozen faces stare at her. Mostly petite blonde women between the ages of 18 and 28, all wearing skirts above the knees, as if there's like an unofficial dress code. There is. Emma looks to Jerry, who's chatting with Neil. So, I own the entire company, including the editing division? Yes, yes. Now we should talk about the board. They function as... Yeah, uh, Gary, you're fired. Is this some kind of 
joke? I'm, I'm going to No, you're going to get the fuck out of my building before I have security do an anal cavity search on you with a pneumatic cattle prod. As she ends the call, Neil betrays a hint of a smile. Interior editing suite simultaneous. Sammy picks up his ringing phone as a security guard enters. Sammy, you're being promoted into Gary's job. Man, how am I going to do his job and host D&D tonight? Interior Crowley's office continuous. Emma takes another sip of scotch and grimaces. You can host D&D in the editing suite. New directive. Cut for time, not spin. No more fake news. And go easy on the centaur porn. That shit can't be healthy. Emma swipes off her phone and turns to Jerry and Neil. Hmm. I suddenly have a little more respect for you. Wow. Thanks. That's nice. Like 5% respect, 95% disdain. Not bad. Neil is your assistant now, Mishay. Anything you need, he's at your service. Awesome. Can I get some Diet Coke to go with that whiskey in there? That scotch is $300 a bottle. You want to mix it with Diet Coke? Or Diet Pepsi, whatever's on sale. (laughs) (laughs) Would you care for some Cheez-Its to balance your palate? Good thinking. Cheez-Its. No. Executive decision, Cheetos. I like how they're all, you know, puffy. Get the puffy Cheetos, not the hard, twisty Cheetos. Oh, puffy Cheetos. Got it. Mm, you are a whirlwind of leadership genius and culinary sophistication. Emma knows he's being sarcastic as hell, but she smiles anyway. Cheeto delivery on command. Now that's some high-class shit. <laughs> End of Act 1. Act 2. Interior <sighs> subway car day. Kendra looks sharp in a tailored skirt suit. Emma wears athletic shorts and a red, tattered Viva Kurosawa t-shirt. He's insecure. Puts his name on buildings in giant letters to win the approval of a mother who never loved him. Trying to humanize the monster you have to do publicity for? Kendra shrugs. Kendra shrugs. Emma shows her a picture on her phone. I can't afford the Upper West Side. You know my my parents cut me off. Just come look with me. The train comes to a stop. Kendra pushes through the Wall Street crowd to filter off the train. Fine. I'll look. Try not to fall off your horse. I don't think it's that kind of polo. (laughs) Cut to exterior Manhattan rooftop garden day. A polo ball rolls across lush grass. Pull back to reveal Emma with a polo mallet on a fucking Segway. Dagone it! Cut through! Stan in a red polo taps the ball to Emma, who misses the pass. Huxley in blue intercepts and scores. Emma is surrounded by her unhappy teammates. Some athlete you are, little lady. Athlete? We're on segways. It takes more athleticism to sit on a toilet after eating Chipotle. (laughs) You know why you're on my team? Because I'm a southern gentleman. And none of them boys wanted to play with a girl. On Emma's face. Okay, game the fuck on. It's the final shuck, little lady. Put one in, all's forgiven. On the sideline, Roger Emerald watches with Chase, Cody, whatever, at his side. If I was out there, I'd have five goals. Beautiful goals. But I don't play this loser polo. I only play real polo on purebred Arabian horses <laughs> from Iceland. <laughs> Arabian horses from Iceland? Chase Cody whatever opens his mouth to question him, but he thinks better of it. On the pitch, Emma and Huxley one-on-one. Emma spins her segue to get to the ball. Huxley on her heels. Emma zips between defenders, just her and the goal. She swings, crack, strikes the ball cleanly, and completely misses. Stan motors up alongside her. Well, gone. maybe they were right about you little lady. <laughs> Interior Emerald Tower, communications office day. Kendra stares at a crumpled letter as she talks on her desk phone. We can just make out the acronym BGSO on the letterhead. On 9-11, Roger Emerald found a box of puppies in lower Manhattan under debris from the falling towers. Roger risked his life to save those puppies from the terrorist. 
Would a brave hero like that launder Isis money through putting cake bonds? Kendra listens as Sue Joanne enters, taps her watch. Thanks, Sean. You're a great American. Kendra hangs up and looks up to Sue Joanne. Was that a personal call? That was Sean Hannity from Fox News. Did you get my text? Why haven't you responded to my text? I didn't see your text. I've been on the radio, you know, for public relations. I don't text just to text. I asked you to stop by my office to talk about your stapler. My stapler? <laughs> Sue Joanne picks up the stapler on Kendra's desk and squeezes. It's empty. Your desk is the closest to the printer. Three times this week I've been unable to staple something. Three times. <laughs> I think I have some staples in here. That's not the point. When I'm picking up a document off the printer, it slows me down if I can't rely on the nearest stapler. <laughs> Kendra takes a long look at the stapler. How the fuck is this my life? <laughs> Meanwhile, how does selling pink Twinkies make you a real estate mogul? Exterior Midtown Athletic Club day. Emma and the moguls stand on the sidewalk. Chase Cody whatever passes out what indeed appears to be large pink Twinkies. Not Twinkies. They're strawberry emerald pudding cakes. Twinkies are for fags. That's why they're called Twinkies. <laughs> he inherited a fortune from his mama. Bought half the daggone tenements in Manhattan. A shrewd business move. These zipheads wish they'd thought of it. Thank you, Hux. See... Here's a man who can see a big genius. Huxley moves toward the limo at the curb. Two of the petite blondes from the office are in the back of the car. Note, these women will play an important role later in the season. For now, we just know that Huxley has a type. Oh, the hello guys just pulled up. No line! Emma sprints for the food cart. Stan, Emerald, and Chase Cody whatever follow Huxley. Hux, Hux, come on. You're not really going to let that dumb broad take over FNA, are you? Of course not. That's why she's here. We're showing her she doesn't belong. If we're paying attention, we may notice the blonde woman in the car cast subtly glances looks to each other. You think losing at Fleshlight Polo is going to scare her off? <laughs> I gave you balls for a reason. Fucking use them, man. You know, Roger, she kind of earned her job the same way you did and heard it from Papa. Or Mama, in your case. Listen here, little Stan. Call me I little Stan again, and I'll cut your sack open with a grapefruit spoon. Swear to dang God. <laughs> <laughs> Behind him, we hear a lyrical Irish accent. Ah, hum now, mates. Shiving one another with sharpened spoons hardly seems Spartan. <laughs> Exit in the club is Darcy Elaine, 34. Fit. Aforementioned lyrical accent. The kind of guy who can wear a Shamrock Rovers FC jersey without looking like a yob. The moguls don't even try to hide their disdain for him. Huxley's limo exits. Lil Stan and Roger Emerald climb into their own limos. As Emerald's limo pulls away, he leans his head out the window and shouts. Go back to where you came from, you mick cunt. <laughs> Emma reappears with a box from the halal cart. Did he just say... Aye, your friends are lovely. Friends? Those guys? Yeah, no. So not my friends. Why do they... Same reason they hate you, I reckon. Because I'm in their world, but not of it. Uh, he extends a hand. Darcy Allen. I make beer and spaceships. Intergalactic Intergalactic hops! I know! I love your habanero heffenweisen! You're like a beer superhero. They walk toward the subway, pass a billboard with a picture of, Romer, of Roger Emerald in a gold-plated fighter jet, holding a pink Twinkie. <laughs> if they're not your friends, what are you doing with that lot? Just for the love of Segway polo? <laughs> Emma laughs and sighs. Where to begin? <laughs> Interior Upper West Side Apartment night. A realtor shows Emma and Kendra a beautiful uh, Upper West Side apartment. Darcy follows, somewhat bemused. Four bedrooms, three and a half baths, Brazilian cherry floors, 12-foot ceilings. Give us a minute. The realtor nods, exits to the kitchen, while the others look at the view of Central Park West. Matt Damon lives in this building. I'm not sure that's a selling point, mate. I heard he pees in the pool. <laughs> uh. 
I, I can't afford this, Em. I get a small stipend from my grandparents. If I keep my internship, if I don't get fired for, for Stabler-related issues. How many times have you bailed me out when I was short on rent? I can pay for both of us. It's not just that. It's... Come on. I want you to move in with me. We can play tennis on the roof, go swimming in the same pool that Matt Damon pees in. <laughs> I, I have to go. Kendra rushes out the door, clearly upset. Emma shrugs. She probably just had a hard day at work. She's a bunch of... Twitter accounts to promote Roger Emerald. Man's a monster. They all are. Except you, uh, at least you make beer. And spaceships. Beer and spaceships. Drunk astronauts. What could go wrong? <coughs> Why are you being nice to me? Stan, Huxley, even my assistant. Those fuckers are all being total fuckers. Perhaps because I was in your position not long ago. Thrust into the role of CEO and my brewery took off. Sure, that's the only reason? Darcy smiles, leans in, and wipes off her shoulder with a handkerchief. You just add a bit of halal sauce. <laughs> is this what being a CEO is all about? Making sure you don't have food stains on your shirt? CEO is a bollocks title. The job is what you make of it. You need to make your mark and make it soon. Make my mark? Like pee on the carpet outside Huxley's door? <laughs> no need to resort to Matt Damon's level. I was thinking more metaphorical. Metaphorical peeing. Got it. Henry Ford only made it to sixth grade. Steve Jobs couldn't program a VCR. I'm a brewer with a spaceship company. Haven't got a clue what I'm doing, so I fake it and hire some bloody smart fuckers. <laughs> so you really aren't just trying to get laid? You're trying to help me succeed? Hi. Emma smiles, even if she's not entirely sure she buys it. Interior Crowley's office morning. Emma sits at her desk, doodling. She watches YouTube clips of classic journalists. Cronkite, Murrow, Eiffel. On her TV, Coffee Cake Pals. Global warming, <clears throat> just because half of Miami is underwater? Don't these stupid libtards know Miami has always been warm? Miami is underwater because of all the trannies. Ooh, I don't, I don't think we're supposed to say trannies anymore. There was a memo. Well, I'm not PC. All I know is those are God's tears flooding Miami because trannies are using the wrong bathrooms. Back oh. on Emma, she looks at the words on her doodle. Make your mark. Interior Coffee Cake Pal Studio, day. Huxley watches his hosts like a proud father. Emma enters through the rear stage door, followed by Neil. Thanks for the moral support. <laughs> support? Oh, sweetie, no, I'm only here to watch the carnage. I love a good train wreck. <laughs> On the set, if we're paying attention, we'll notice that Brooke wears a baby blue miniskirt, <laughs> just as Huxley requested. That's why we thank Louis Gommert for speaking out against the tranny takeover of our toilets and keeping the gays out of NASA. The congressman is right. The gays already have all these special rights on Earth. We need to stop the Rainbow Wars from taking over any more planets. Up next, we have Phil Robertson here to get his, his perspective on gay space arcs. <laughs> they flash their TV smiles as camera operators pull back. Once she hears a cut from the control room, Emma storms onto set. Gay space arcs? What the hell is wrong with you? Most of the crew are trying not to visibly smile or laugh. You can't talk to us this way. We're TV stars. Except for one camera operator who sees a head motion from Huxley and turns his camera on Emma. If we let the gays go to space, they'll reproduce and make it so everyone in space is gay. It's just common sense. Oh my god, you can't possibly be this stupid! Fermented cheese is not this stupid! Enough. We're about to come back from break. Phil, ignore this crazy bitch and come on out. A bearded man in camouflage starts to enter from the other side of the set, but stops before we even see his full face. Stop right there, turn your ZZ top looking ass around, and get off my set, you duck dynasty motherfucker! This is our show, Missy, our show, and our viewers will not stand for this tyranny. Tyranny? Emma grits her teeth, holds her tongue for a moment, 
Just a moment, then... Listen here, princess, I... Cut to black. End of Act 2. Act 3. Interior, Emerald Tower, Communications Office, Day. Sue Joanne enters, walks over to Kendra's desk's desk, and picks up the stapler. She squeezes, twice. Makes a dramatic show of it. Looking for staples. <laughs> Details matter, Kimbra. Kendra. Do we need to set up daily stapler checks on Outlook Alerts? <laughs> off Kendra, ready to take a flying leap <laughs> off of the rooftop, too. Interior, Crowley's office morning. As Kendra's world crumbles around her, Emma is on the rise. She hangs um, framed Yojimbo and Sunjaro movie posters. All you need is a trail of used tissues, and it'll look like a teenage nerd's bedroom. <laughs> used tissues? Why would... Ew. Gross. Emma looks through the open blinds and sees Darcy heading their way, looking sharp in vintage jeans and a tailored shirt. You've got a sharp wit. Give me a good jab for Darcy. Are you insane? That man is an Irish god. We should bow before him and lick Haggis off his <laughs> tightly sculpted glutes. Haggis is Scottish if we're gonna lick anything off his butt. Should be corned beef and Guinness. Darcy enters and takes a look around. I like what you've done with the place. Samurai chic. Neil gives Darcy the once-over and exits to his desk office. How do I start? I want to turn this place into an actual news organization, like the Washington Post or Teen Vogue. <laughs> you can start by offering me a whiskey. With that Coke? No. Good God, no. Really? Neil pops back <laughs> in. You might want to leave early. And don't watch TV for a few months. At least. Emma looks at Neil, then looks through the windows, past the sea of blondes, to Huxley's office across the floor. Uh-oh. Interior Huxley's office continuous. Huxley has a crowd in his office, a dozen men in suits, including Lil Stand and Roger Emerald, watching a big TV. If it ain't the little lady of the hour. Huxley starts a smarmy slow clap as Emma enters. The other execs join in. She looks up to the TV. Oh, shit. On TV, the Coffee Cake Pals studio. Listen here, princess. I want... You can't talk to us this way. Our viewers won't stand. Fuck your viewers. Your viewers are a bunch of blithering shit pickles. Is that bad? That sounds bad. We have a real news to discuss. Climate change is wreaking havoc, and you're talking about gay space arcs. You're serving up political porn for dipshits. They jerk off to your morning show and twerk to your afternoon shows. Emma has fucking lost it. She starts twerking and making jerk-off motions. <laughs> arr, arr, I gotta fight the war on bathrooms. Libtards wanna clean out the planet. Arr. Back to Huxley's office. All eyes on Emma. Huxley flips the channel. There's Emma on CNN, twerking and jerking. He changes the channel again and again and again. More twerking and jerking. Emma sprints back to her office and closes the blinds. Credit where credit's due, Hux. You humili humiliated her on national TV. That's leadership. Just tremendous. These men are full of smirks and high fives. Except, except Neil. Unimpressed by the aging frat boys. Interior Crowley's office the next morning. Neil and Jerry look down at Emma, asleep on the sofa. A long string of orange Cheeto drool dripping from her mouth. I'm simultaneously repulsed and a little turned on. Wakey-wakey. Mm. Time to prepare for the board meeting. What's the point? I'm a national laughing stock. Have you seen BuzzFeed? Yes! You are hilarious! If you were a man and you behave like that, you could be president! <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> Emma's phone rings. She sees the name Wormhole on the screen. Not now, Mom. Board's gonna fire me. I'm not qualified to be a CEO. <laughs> Silly girl. No one becomes CEO because they're qualified. People become CEO by stabbing motherfuckers in the back. I do not care for that luggage, but he's right. Backstabbing your way to the top is the American way, and he's your chef. 
Jerry reaches into his coat pocket and hands Emma a DVD. Frozen? <laughs> oh, 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 wrong DVD. You should watch this one too. <laughs> this one makes a better shift. She looks at the DVD. It has one word scrawled on it with a sharpie. Goats. <laughs> Interior boardroom day. Emma is cleaned up, even wearing a pantsuit. No mustard stains, yet. A dozen old white men sit around the table, including Roger Emerald and Lil Stan. Of course, those guys are on the board. I've been advised that the only way to win is to play dirty, but I refuse to do that. She spies Huxley through the glass walls, watching from the hallway, grinning, flanked by two of his blondes. I believe in apologies. I, I made mistakes. I twerked. I drooled. Pretended to jerk off an imaginary penis on national television for 11 minutes. I called our entire revenue base blithering shit pickles. I swam in a pool Matt Damon peed in. <laughs> but I have faith the board will accept my apologies and give me a second chance. I can do better. We can do better. Roger Emerald turns to Stan. That's why you can't let broads run shit. They're all yappy and emotional. Broads are for fucking. Because they lose <laughs> blood to their dang brains when it leaks out the hoo-hahs. That sucks. Mm -hmm. Cast your votes on the referendum to remove Emma Shea as CEO and replace her with Randall Huxley. The moguls fill out their ballots and hand them to Jerry. Once he's halfway around, he looks at Emma and shakes his head. Did I say I refuse to play dirty? Fuck that. <laughs> Stop the vote. Where's my shiv? She picks up a TV remote and points it at the TV. On screen, Huxley parades a goat around Crowley's office. Crowley sits on the sofa, shirtless. Huxley picks up an electric razor. Back on Emma, as the sound of buzzing comes from the speakers. I believe many of you were members of a group called the Femur and Lemur Society at Yale, at Princeton, at Colby. That a boy, Huxley. Shave that goat. While this may look bad for Huxley... <laughs> good, good. Now get the coconut oil. Emma points the remote and pauses the video. Thing is, recreational goat shaving is sweet and innocent compared to what happens at Femurs and Lemurs events. In a film of the warthog and llama incident of 1983 at Yale, where to surface on <laughs> you, you know, I, I might have marked the wrong day. Go and call him on my ballot. <laughs> Executives scramble to get their ballots back. Interior Emma's office moments later. Emma regroups with Neil after her victory. I always thought people who had ambition were assholes. But maybe I can make a difference. Maybe I can be one of those assholes. Maybe. <laughs> I, I have a plan. Well, by plan, I mean a plan to make shit up as I go. Good. I never trust anyone with a plan. People who have plans cause wars and bubonic plagues. Emma considers this for a moment, and then... You saved me. You and the lawyer. I thought you hated me. Ugh, I don't hate you at all. Are we becoming friends? No. Ew, gross. I didn't said I don't hate you. That doesn't mean I like you. Emma smiles. That's just about perfect. Interior Woodside Apartment Day. Emma enters and sees that Kendra is gone. She looks at Kendra's bed and sees that crumpled letter with BGSO letterhead. She bolts right back out the door. Interior Upper West Side Apartment Day. Emma hands a wad of cash to the realtor, who rips up the rental contract. Interior Woodside Apartment Night. Kendra works on her laptop as Emma comes in, struggling to carry a long, heavy box wrapped in a bow. Bought you a present. Emma lays the heavy box down at the table. I saw the letter. The BGSO? I can't even win a second violin audition for the Branson Symphony Orchestra. New York film? Sure. But Bowling Green? Not that I wanted to move to Kentucky, anyway. Nobody wants to live in Kentucky. That's why they call it Kentucky. <laughs> Kendra takes the bow off the box and opens it. A sledgehammer? I cleared it with the super. 
Those paint huffers who moved out in the middle of the night. I'm buying their apartment. We smash through that wall. We have a two-bedroom. You're choosing me over Matt Damon. He's a Red Sox fan. Fuck the Red Sox. Kendra picks up the sledgehammer and... Fuck the Red Sox. Crash. Drywall goes flying as she smashes through the wall. And through the hole in the wall, we see a stunned old man, 70s, sitting on a toilet. Shit! Wrong wall! Sorry, Mr. Henderson! Oh, I like that bathroom tile. Mind if I... Kendra quickly pulls Emma away from the hole in the wall. (laughs) End of Act 3. Tag. Interior Coffee Cake Studio... Um, Coffee Cake Pals Studio Day. The hosts shift uncomfortably in their seats. Our new CEO, Emma Shea, has issued an apology on behalf of the network. That's never happened before on Coffee Cake Pals. This is the first time we've been wrong about anything. We pull back off the TV to interior prison continuous. A dozen inmates watch Coffee Cake Pals in the TV room. It turns out those rioters were not Syrian Muslims in Paris after all. They were Ohio State football fans burning couches over touchdowns. A prison guard exits to interior prison hallway continuous. The guard walks down a dark, damp concrete hall. Looks like a row of solitary confinement cells. He stops at the last cell and slides open the window slot. Ruggins, your sister is on TV. Half-sister. Interior Ruggins cell continuous. We pull back off a concrete wall, revealing Ruggins Crowley, 35, looking tanned and fit, not a hair out of place. As we pull back further, we see Ruggins in a massive palatial cell with high ceilings, skylights, and a huge TV. Apparently, burning couches is something out of tradition, or something of a tradition in Ohio. Who knew? (laughs) Did you know? Those rascals. Sometimes you have to let youngsters blow off a little steam. Ruggins clicks off the show and pulls up a video of his late father. Ruggins, if you're watching this, bad news. I'm dead. For now. My body has been cryogenically frozen, so with luck, I'll be back soon. Regardless, I won't let a little thing like death stop me from running the Crowley Empire. You and me, together, we will be unstoppable. With these videos, it'll be like I'm still alive, son. Like Marlon Brando and Superman. I'm a goddamn immortal. (laughs) Ruggins pauses the video, pulls off his shirt, revealing a ripped upper body. We follow him through the massive cell to a swimming pool. Yes, a fucking swimming pool in prison. Okay, it's not Olympic-sized, it's a narrow lap pool, but still. My time is coming, Emma That company is mine. He clicks off the TV, dives in, and starts swimming laps. And we fade to black. End of show. Woo! Um, for those tuning in live, we're about to have writer Josh Dorian on the phone. I cannot wait to chat with him. Um, but in the meantime, we're going to take a five-minute break, so stay tuned, and we'll be right back. <sighs> Ladies and gentlemen, we're back here with the Unproduced Table Read, and I believe we have Josh Dorian on the line. Josh, can you hear us? Uh, I can hear you, yes. Yay. Awesome. Um, if you couldn't tell, we really like this script. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you. You guys were brilliant. Uh, you were all great. So thank you for uh, for that wonderful performance. Um, I think before we talk about, there's so much just brilliant satire in the script that's so much fun. I think really fun for our actors, hopefully, too. Oh, amazing. Yeah. Um, I want to talk about your background a bit. You used to be, as you um, said, quote, a corporate whore. Can you talk about that experience and how that kind of informed your inspirations in writing of this script? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I graduated with a college with an English degree, didn't really know what to do with it. Um, so I did, you know, I, I went into work just as a writer, you know, a corporate writer. Um, 
everything from starting with software manuals to uh, moving into sometimes speeches for CEOs, magazine, newspaper articles, press releases, that sort of thing. And the interesting thing about that kind of work is you're very unimportant. You're the least important person in the room, but you're around these, you know, very high level uh, executives. And you you start to realize you become, you're sort of invisible and um, they start talking candidly around you, forgetting you're there. And you realize that you meet a few brilliant ones, but a lot of them are just complete morons. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, like, you capture, like, the moronic executive so well. Um, but what I like is you probably have, like, four or five of them in this script, but you distinguish all of them with pretty subtle choices. Can you talk about um, writing a type? Because I think what you do a good job, and this is important for comedy writers, is to write types, because you have to do that in comedy, but give them specific quirks that make them unique. Can you talk about how you kind of went about distinguishing all of these kind of um, white-suited executives? Um, yeah, well, unfortunately, a lot of them are based on uh, real people or, you know, not Ross, Ross amalgamations of people. So a lot of those quirks and some of the, even the, the lines of dialogue are, are things people have said. Um, you know, they sound kind of cartoonish a lot of times, but, uh, you know, as we've seen since, since November in the election, um, cartoonish people uh, exist in the real world. Yeah, I was telling the cast before we went back on live with you that, like, there's a line in there where you're like, oh, I mean, if a man acted that way, he could become president. And it's like, I wanted to laugh at that in studio, but there's something so eerily on the nose about it. Um, Was that line written before the official results of the election, or...? I think that one was written after. Okay. Um, mm. Ro- Roger Emerald was always loosely based on kind of a younger Trump. I wrote, but I wrote this thing originally like a year ago. Um, mm-hmm. And of course, you know, like everybody else, I didn't think he was actually going to get elected. Yeah. Um, Surprise. So, yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, people are getting elected to house seats after body slamming reports. Yeah, I know. So, where did you come up with gay space R? That was just brilliant. <laughs> yeah. I don't remember, but I remember that uh, that Congress, who was a legal mayor, that congressperson actually said something about NASA needs to stop gay people from going into space. Like, that was a real thing. Yep. And uh, it's just so mind-blowing that, you know, people say stuff like that, mm-hmm. that I had, to, I had to make fun of it some way. Yeah, it's so great. Um, and I think I want to talk about kind of our entry into this world because I think this script might have been kind of a bummer if our only entry or point of view was all these executives but you give us Emma who's such a fun protagonist um can you talk about inspirations for Emma or just is she kind of a vessel for you would you say um a little bit um you know I'm not much like her I'm not you know a young millennial woman um but (laughs) really yeah the the inspiration came from Somebody on Twitter a couple of years ago said she had a friend who was a liberal who works at Fox News. Um, and I didn't really find out, you know, follow up with that to find out what she did at Fox News. Uh, but I thought that was an interesting character to start with. Somebody who works at Fox News, Fox News because they need a job, um, but they hate it. And uh, what if you, you know, took that person and made her CEO? Mm. Yeah. yeah, it's a really, really strong logline. Like, I've said this a couple times on the show, but sometimes you get a logline that just feels like it's a sell right from the start. So I do want to credit you on that. Just, it's a, it's a great, really rich premise to kind of throw us into this world. How much, have you written a lot of scripts preceding this one? 
Yeah, um, this is, I think this is my second pilot. I've okay. written a couple of screenplays. Um, you know, like every English major, I'd, I'd written a couple, you know, or tried to write a couple novels, uh, which were terrible. <laughs> so I started, you know, started with a couple of bad novels. And then, you know, since I was writing mostly comedy, I thought, well, you know, maybe I should try my hands at a screenplay. Um, and this was after, like years after I graduated from college. So I didn't, you know, I hadn't gone to film school or anything like that. So I did the typical thing where I read a bunch of scripts and just started writing. So this is, you know, I wrote a few screenplays and then this is my second pilot. Um, you, go ahead. Do you have a sister? <laughs> I'm sorry? Do you, have a, do you have a sister? I know it sounds like a weird question. Uh, I do have a sister, yes. Yeah. She's, I, uh, she. A classical musician, so that's where Kendra came from. Mm. I, th- I think that that's awesome, and I think that you are probably the first person on our show that is a male writer who has a female-driven script, mm-hmm. uh, and I think that that's really terrific. We have one other, the the, the brother-sister, where, well, oh, it but it's more, yeah, yeah so, it was both. yeah, that's true. I Never was thinking mind. about that, but I think that's pretty kick-butt, and um, I, th- I think maybe your sister had something to do with that so thanks to <laughs> yeah. yeah I was actually yeah, my, um, sorry to cut you off I was actually going to ask about that just a follow up question did you always want to make it with a female lead in Emma um, <laughs> and is it because of the blatant like sexism and misogyny in that industry or did you play around with maybe like a liberal male lead at one point no she was always going to be a woman and it was yeah exactly for those reasons you described there is all that misogyny in that world and I feel like it has to be a female protagonist to you know to counteract that and mm-hmm. to fight against that yeah. hell yeah uh, well, it's really, it, this is a compliment, but like, if I were to just read this script, I might kind of close-mindedly assume that a woman wrote it. So it's very, very, I, I hope that doesn't sound sexist, but it's a compliment to your ability to really, I think, capture a voice that is just, I think it's a really, really interesting, complex portrayal of a female. And it's so important that that exists because it is a grossly misogynistic world you're exploring. So I credit you um, in that way. Um it's yeah, it's it's exciting, and the script just gets me excited um, because yeah. I don't think we've seen we've seen satire in other workplace mm-hmm. comedies. Like I don't know, do you watch Veep at all? I do. I love Veep. <laughs> yeah, Veep and Veep and Silicon Valley. Yeah. And I worked in Silicon Valley for a while, so that show is disturbingly accurate. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah, Veep I mean, is Veep's kind of similar in that. Yeah, you have a lot of idiots in very powerful positions. <laughs> yeah, I mean, do you? It's funny. Right when I read this, I kind of thought this is made for HBO. Did you have them in that? Did you have that network in mind when you wrote it? Oh yeah, I mean, you know, HBO, Netflix. It's obviously it would be a serious rewrite to make it for network. Um, yeah, it was always you know either cable or, or streaming. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing I want to ask is like. There's kind of an element of fantasticness to this script. I mean, the the premise of this, just this, you know, millennial graduate um, who has a low-end job at a news station all of a sudden becomes CEO is a bit of a um, fantastic premise, but it, something about the script feels so grounded and realistic despite the heightened satire. How did you, this is kind of a vague question, but how did you pull that off? How is it that we were able to feel like we were in a grounded world with kind of such a fantastic, un unlikely premise um honestly it was tricky it was you know i had drafts that were much more you know much more like elevated almost monty python type cartoonish (laughs) and i love that kind of stuff but i would i would you know slowly dial it back in the next draft it's uh it just took a lot of rewrites basically it was you know a fine line to walk um, along those lines, what draft do you think this is for you? And as a follow-up to that question, I'd love to hear a bit about your process as a writer. 
Um, geez, drafts. You know, I, I don't know. I don't really keep that close to track, but it's it's probably 20 drafts in. <laughs> and then how about, like, what do you think are some of the major changes that you've seen from your first version of this script to its current iteration? Um, geez, I, you know, I first started this three years ago. I wrote a quick, you know, mm-hmm. um, a quick, really rough draft um, that, you know, you would never show to anybody. And then... <laughs> um, and then I kind of set it aside and came back to it. So it's been so long. Um, yeah. That's okay. I mean... Sorry, I'm kind of drawing a blank. No, you're, you're totally fine. It's. I think part of the reason I asked that question is because a lot of our audiences are writers. And one of the motifs that I think should be encouraging to writers is that it takes a lot of drafts. Yeah. We read a feature, I guess, a couple months ago now called Plain Jane. And our writer called her first draft the vomit draft of the <laughs> script. So Yeah, absolutely. I think it's encouraging to writers to hear that if you give it a shot and you don't love your first version of the pilot, it does take time to get it um, into shape. Yeah, to piggyback on that, I'm actually like I'm I'm strictly an actor and I'm trying to write more. Um, what was your inspiration to start writing this? Like, where? What was the starting point? Was it Emerald? Was it Emma? Was it Kendra? Hmm. Because looking at this <clears throat> and how complete and how well thought out it is, and the fact that it's twentieth draft, makes me wonder what was page one, day one. Was it mm. page twenty? Was it page one? Like, wh- was it Roger Emerald's character outline? It was it that opening sequence, um, the teaser where she's in the editing room. Mm-hmm. What they were editing changed a few times, but it was always her and her boss um, basically making fake news. Originally, it was is something you know misframing something Obama said. Uh, of course, it had to change since he's no longer president. Um, but it always started with Emma. It started with that tweet I saw that you know somebody had a friend who's a liberal who works at Fox News, and I said, you know, what if I take her? Um, and make her CEO. Um, and then from there, I, I wanted, the media world was sort of perfect in that I can have those other CEOs uh, be involved in the show and you can take one of those and kind of, you know, concentrate an episode on somebody like Lil Stan with healthcare because I worked in healthcare for a while and that's, you know, a really uh, twisted, sick world that needs to be satirized yeah. uh, as does Fox News. But it, it always started with Emma in that opening scene where, you know, they're editing video to make it appear something that it isn't. That's cool. Uh, another question I have is is that you do such a great job, and Louis C.K. is famous for doing this as well, but you say things that are uncomfortable to say in here, uh, mm-hmm. but you do them with such conviction behind the character that says them. How did you find was the best way to do that? Because there's a lot of things in here, I, and this is another weird question. Are, are you white? <laughs> I am, yes. Yeah, exactly. So as a white male writer, what was that like for you to write these things and be like, look, this is just how it is, and it's going to be palatable, mm-hmm. and it's intelligent? It's uh, it's honestly, it's uncomfortable. Like, hearing you guys read those lines, I'm like, oh, jeez, did I write that? <laughs> <laughs> horrible stuff, um, you know. But a lot of it is maybe slightly elevated, but not that elevated is pretty close to things I've heard people say, um, either in that world or out of Fox News or, you know, out of the political world these days. Yeah. 
I think that's awesome. And like even the line, like the blacks love me, write that yeah. down. Yeah. I, I don't even think it's that far off. Like I have two incredibly liberal grandparents, but just different generations yeah. like phrase yeah. things differently. And you're like, what the F just came out of your mouth? But I, I thought the dialogue was dead on. Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. that sure... one I stole straight from Trump. Yeah. He uh, said that. Yeah. Yeah. Where he yeah. said yeah. the yeah. Hispanics yeah. love me. Yeah. yeah. Changed it to the blacks love me. Oh, yeah. He yeah. tweeted it. Oh, yeah. He, he yeah. tweeted it with a picture of him yeah. at a Mexican restaurant, I believe. <laughs> mm-hmm. With a taco yeah. salad. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that, that exists in writing. Oh, yeah. my gosh. And that's amazing. I think that's what I loved about this script is that the characters are so defined, even in this first half hour pilot episode like even the sub characters like Emma's mom and Sue and Neil they're like so defined yeah who is your favorite character to write and just on an opposite note of that who is the most challenging um character to write in your opinion um I guess my favorite to write is Emma because she's she kind of doesn't know what she's doing but she's she knows she wants to rebel against all of this, but doesn't know how to do it. Um, and probably for that same reason, she's also the most challenging to write. Um, yeah. How did you, was it, I find Emma very likable, despite the fact that she's kind of a mess. Um, is that a goal for you, writing likable characters? And if so, whether or not it is, what do you think it is about Emma's character that makes her likable? Because she's kind of like an unambitious slob. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. yeah, well, she's, uh, yeah, she's she's a combination of people I know. But, yeah, I have a lot of, you know, unambitious slob friends. Um, <laughs> you know, I, you know, the, the sort of CBS sitcom where everybody's, you know, very well put together, that's fine. And those those kinds of things can be fun. But I really, I, I just enjoy the more, the characters who are kind of a mess and have more going on and you have to sometimes you struggle to like them sometimes they say terrible things um you know obviously not as terrible as as some of the the men um (laughs) but yeah she's she can be abrasive and uh i like that yeah okay josh um as towards the end of the script um we finally get (coughs) introduced to Ruggins and he is locked up and i like how you left us with my time is coming MSA, that company is mine. So, after the pilot-wise, what goes down? <laughs> like, is there a big family duel? Like, mm. am I gonna get the company? What goes down? Yeah, I've I've written a Bible, so I've kind of roughly mapped out what I would do for a season. Obviously, you know, if it got picked up somewhere, that would you know involve creative discussions with executives mm-hmm. uh, and. And those sorts of things would change depending on who was cast. Um, but, yeah, I had Ruggins, you know, kind of slowly getting ready. He was going to come out of prison like halfway through the first season and um, fight to try and get the company back. But it was going to be a legal battle. Mm. Jerry, the lawyer, who seems like an idiot, I had in the Bible, I have it that he was you know, basically playing an idiot uh, because he hated himself or working for the family for all those years. Mm. So that's why he basically turned the company over to Emma. So it's going to be a legal battle to try and get that company back. Well, I have to credit you because I think it's hard in comedy pilots to establish interesting cliffhangers. And there's like three or four in this yeah. pilot, which yeah. is really impressive because yeah. I love comedy and I like have a number of comedy pilots. And I find that's the most challenging thing is to establish a tone, create a world, establish characters, but also create some interesting plot hooks. So I applaud you in that area. Uh, I have a quick question about you rounding your characters out, Josh. Um, you have this really great gift of 
basically writing a line to make a smaller character seem completely real. Hmm. Uh, some of the in instances of this are like uh, when Emma's talking to her mom on the phone and she's like, your husband was a biology teacher for heaven's sakes. Yeah. And then the stepdad walks up and there's a mansion in the background. He's got a smile on his face. You've got Darcy who refuses to drink $300 scotch. You have all these small little gems that round characters out like effortlessly with just a line. Do, do you know? Do you understand what I'm what I'm saying here? Like, how do you make them so real with just writing four words, five words? Um, I, I well, I whittle it down. You know, it doesn't start with four or five words. It right. starts with a paragraph, and you know, I that that script was it like thirty five pages, thirty eight, something like that. Um, you know, I probably wrote you know a fifty page first draft, fifty five pages. Um, you know, and cut it down, rewrote. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, that's, I guess that's the trick is just, you know, cut it down until you get kind of the bare essence of what you need. Yeah, because the way that you write Gail, I actually think she's the most perfectly written character because she's so short. And I'm like, I know exactly who that woman is. I see her, I know her husband, I know where they are. Like, I, I just thought that was really cool. Um, do you have any questions for us, Josh? Um, yeah, actually I do. I, uh, you know, you probably, I feel like I have to apologize to you as actors a little bit because I write, you know, nobody watching this can see it, but there are all these ellipses and pauses <laughs> and things like that in the dialogue, which I'm assuming kind of drives you crazy. And I kind of write that not for the actor, for the reader. Um, how does, how does that kind of thing affect you all as you're reading through it? It's awesome. Yeah. You did yeah. a you did a great job. Uh, honestly, there wasn't that much text between um, things, and I, I thought it was super easy to get through. And it's fine, and and that's not how it would be when it's acted out anyway. Yeah, it's always funny yeah. to like hear it in the table read format, and someone's yeah. reading on the stage directions. But I, I, as it's written, I can totally see how like the editing would uh -huh. be yeah, the visual joke, and it, mm -hmm. it really works. Yeah, right. Yeah. And I love how I love reading a script that that a writer has written because sometimes reading a line I would be like okay this is how I would say it but then you might put a comma someplace and I'd be like okay well this is obviously how the writer would envision mm -hmm. it so maybe I should see how they would inflect this or mm -hmm. how they would say this and maybe I can find a different spin or a different twist on it yeah. um, so I appreciate those little innuendos if I have to mark them out then I do and make my own character choices as an actor um, but I always keep what the writer um, has intended on the page in mind yeah, it's yeah. a lot more active. So, because some scripts you read and <laughs> and you're just say, you're, you say the lines, and it's very clear that you're like giving out all the information where it, the, all the information could be acted out. So, mm. it, yeah, it was yeah. an active script. So you could see like when certain beats caused or called for action, it was understood. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think Shakespeare showed us the best that punctuation is a is a friend of an <laughs> yeah. actor, yeah. Yeah. and like all the punctuation, all that is is more so appreciated than yeah. anything yeah. else. Yeah. Your script is awesome, man. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Oh, I really love this. You did a great job, and you didn't waste time. Like uh, like someone just said, there's there's not a lot of action, which there doesn't mm -hmm. need to be yeah. when it's like such well written dialogue. Mm -hmm. that was me. I do actually have a question structurally, though. I noticed you'd love a good pre-lap. Like, we have a lot of, like, Emma speaking and bringing us into a new scene. Is that just... I just am wondering if that's something that's common in your writing and why you like that. Because that's kind of more of an editing choice, but... It I, is. Um, I guess I do it because it's... You have those establishing shots, and the establishing shot on its own seems kind of boring, so I, I add that little pre-lap dialogue to it. Yeah. Um, it. It's as simple as that. That's the only reason I do it. Cool. I mean, I just, yeah, to answer your question, just to agree with the actors, kind of more as a writer approaching it, I think it's a really efficient, well-written script. So, yeah. 
Yeah. Um, I always ask this question, Josh. Is there anything today that you watched and listening to us? Is there anything that you want to change? Anything you liked, you didn't like? Things that worked or did not work for you? Um, you know, well, you guys were all great. I, I'm definitely going to watch this again. Um, I'm, I'm in the middle of a couple other projects, so I want to get through those and then come back to Moguls and look at it um, with fresh eyes, and this is going to help me do that. Mm -hmm. So I, I probably will change a couple things here and there, probably mostly in dialogue based on the way you guys perform those lines. Cool. Yeah. I mean, the same way you would do if you cast a show, right. you know, the pilot, um, the actors come in and the actors bring their own personality. Mm -hmm. yeah. They bring their own experiences to a role and, you know, the show is going to change based on that. So yeah, definitely. Um, I just have to ask this question just, just, um, with my one of the characters that I played, Neil, um, I had this debate on whether I should make him blatantly gay or not, um, and then I obviously went with the character choice to make him blatantly gay. Um, but then but the only debate that I had was because he is working for this network, and and I would think that they wouldn't hmm. hire a blatantly gay person. But then at the same time, I'm like, they I probably actually would because they know gays run the world, and you know, <laughs> just the hypocrisy of what they say on the air and what they stand for. But then behind closed doors, they have this gay person that's working for them when you wrote neil was he did you envision him like that or what did i just was i completely off mark i just was curious yeah. neil is based uh neil's based 100 on a guy i worked with in silicon valley uh, right out of college and to be honest i don't know if if that guy was gay or straight i just know he was he sexually harassed everybody but in like a very cheeky way you know not like he didn't seem dangerous or anything and like it didn't matter if it was me or the woman in the next cubicle you know he would come up and you know rub his hand through your hair or something um <laughs> just a very strange guy so he's, he's based 100 percent on a real person who i don't even know um what that guy's sexuality was so i didn't i didn't really think about the point of whether um Fox News would hire a gay person. There are um, gay conservatives. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is true. No. <laughs> there are. What I want to see, Josh, is I want to see Neil seduce Lil Stan, and then Lil Stan <laughs> has to stay in the closet. Um, something like that. I will write that. that down. Awesome. That's a brilliant plot twist. <laughs> just saying, if this goes anywhere, I did just pitch you a joke that you like, so if you're hiring writers. <laughs> Subtle. And actors, I will say. I think this is an especially well-read script on the cast behalf, so just... If, if, if you got your start here, Josh, remember the little <laughs> remember, people. Remember, don't forget. Oh, absolutely. Um, well, thank you so much for this. Uh, you know, I, it was, it's always great to hear your stuff, Brad. You guys really did a billion jobs. Thank you. Of course. Thank I mean, you. it's thank such – I say this every week, but it's such an honor to be reading good material. Yeah. And um, it's – you know what? Actors help writers and writers help actors. So mm -hmm. it's, it's our pleasure, truly. Um, one last thing I want to say. I've noticed that almost every network is now producing original scripted content. And I almost wonder if MSNBC might be interested in making this their oh. first oh. scripted show. <laughs> that would be epic. That would yeah. be hilarious. Oh, yeah. Holy crap, Maybe we produce it, guys. We'll see. Hey. <laughs> um, well, Josh, I can't thank you enough. Does anyone else have anything before we let Josh go? Not that I can think of. Um, it's such a great script. Um, Josh. Yeah, Josh, thank you so much for being here. Do you have any other questions for us before we let you go? No, I just want to thank you again. It was great. Of course. Mm -hmm. Thanks for thank you, us. Josh. We'll keep in touch. And, of course, if you have anything else you want right on the show, it would be our honor to bring it on. So thanks a lot. And uh, we'll keep in touch, Josh. Thanks a lot. Bye. All right. Thank Bye, you. Josh. 
Um, guys, this was Moguls here on the Unproduced Table Read. Um, thanks so much for being here. If you like today's episode, I think I'd recommend episode two. It's a time travel comedy called The Austrian Detail, and it's got <laughs> some of the same, like, really over-the-top, really um, delicious dialogue. Mm-hmm. So that's episode two. And also, before we go, I say it every week, but these scripts come to us heavily discounted from ARA Printing on Magnolia Boulevard. They're the best. They're in Burbank. They're local, and they're great. So I'd highly recommend ARA. And an Expensive. And extremely yeah. inexpensive. If you go with the promo code TableRead, you'll get yourself a discount. That's right. Um, my name is Jeff Graham, guys. Thanks so much for being here today on the Unproduced Table Read. Um, we'll be back next week with another pilot at 10 a.m. Um, I am deciding between a couple, so I don't know exactly what we'll be reading, but I'll know by the... If, if you tune in, obviously the script will be selected. <laughs> something. Um, really quickly, I'd like to plug. I just dropped a six-episode sketch series um, called Improv 101. It's very funny. Nice. And very funny. if you like comedy, tuning in today, I'd highly recommend it because it is a comedy about a dysfunctional improv class. You can find that on the YouTube channel Mind Pro Productions. And you wrote it. I wrote it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I directed some of them. Too, and acted in it. And a little acting, no, no. not too much. <laughs> I'll leave that to the pros. But um, thanks for tuning in, guys. I'd love the rest of my cast to see us out. Uh, yeah, I'm Andrew Guy. You can find me at Andrew Guy on Instagram and Twitter. And actually, if you tune in right now on the Popcorn Talk, we're doing our countdown on Action Movie Anatomy of our top 50 movies of all time, counting down to number one. So if you have time, check nice. that out. I'm Roxy Stryer. You guys can find me everywhere at Roxy Stryer. Also on this network for DC Movie News this week. We will be on a Friday. Um, we'll be there at noon. That's the time. Because we're talking about Wonder Woman. Hey! hey. 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 And I already saw it. And it was awesome. <laughs> but I can't tell you more than that. Uh, I'm Adrian Snow. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Miss Adrian Snow. You can also catch me on Sunday for Doctor Who on AfterBuzz, as well as Handmaid's Tale on Thursdays. Oh, hi. I'm Haley O'Connor once again on Twitter at Haley O'Connor. I am usually on Sci-Fi Weekly on Sundays, but we're on a little hiatus. Yep, I'm on all of my hiatuses for my shows <laughs> as well. I am Timothy Michael. Thank you guys for tuning in. You can reach me on all social media platforms at I am Timothy Mike. Hey guys, Jimmy V. Um, all social media platforms at B. Your own dad. Wednesdays on Black Hollywood Live, DMC. Come check it out. That's 8, right. 8 p.m. Awesome. Well, guys, thanks so much. Um, it's an honor every week to have you tuning in, and we'll be back in a little bit for the Unproduced Table Read. See you next week. We would like to thank you for tuning in. For questions or comments, be sure to visit popcorntalk.com. I'm Sir Richard Wentworth, and this has been a presentation of the Popcorn Talk Network. The views expressed herein are those of the hosts only, do not necessarily reflect the views of the Popcorn Talk Network or its owners or principals.